Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. I see some familiar faces, and uh, for some of you, maybe I am a familiar face. For some of you, maybe you're like, who is this guy? Who is this stranger up here? So I'll try to give you a little bit of background, a little context of who I am. Um, I had the opportunity to serve here at Eagle Church for eight years, actually, on the, the pastoral staff here. I served six years in student ministry and then two years as director of operations uh, until spring of 2014. Uh, my family and I decided to take on another ministry opportunity. I serve at a place called Global Partners now, um, which is part of the Wesleyan Church denomination. It's kind of the mission sending department of the Wesleyan Church, and it's a really cool opportunity just to see uh, God do a lot of amazing things around the world. Uh, we have about 150 missionaries around the world in 99 countries, and it's just been a, a really cool experience uh, since 2014 when we transitioned. Uh, to simplify that, I have been affectionately called the old Ian. <laughs> so if, if all of that kind of went over your head, I, used, I was the original Ian in student ministry, and now you have a new and improved Ian, kind of Ian 2.0. Uh, so I'm the old guy, and you can call me the old Ian, all right? Um, when we transitioned in 2014, uh, we actually just had our first child, and a lot has happened since then for some of you who I haven't talked to or seen much. Uh, that's been about five years ago, and uh, we have three kids now, so uh, we've been fruitful and multiplying here. Um, so that's Daphne. It's our oldest. She will be five in May, and then Boston is up there. He is three, and uh, I don't know if you've heard the expression, three-nager, uh, but that is our son right now. He is a three-nager. He's exploring his own will and exercising that regularly. And then our six-month-old is Malcolm. Uh, we just had him in, in October. Uh, so it's been a little crazy at the household lately, uh, but we're, we're making do, and it's, it's been a good time. So grateful to be able to be here. Eric and I keep in touch, and uh, so opportunity to, to come here today, and uh, just really appreciate that. Well, how many of you are on spring break? Like, this is the beginning of spring break. Anyone here? Spring break? Okay. Anyone coming back from spring break? Like you just finished? Okay, welcome back. Indiana is welcoming you back with a, a fun joke, you know, all this, this weather. How many of you are like, spring break, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't do spring break. Yeah, that's kind of where we're still at. Our kids aren't in school. I haven't had a spring break since college, so, um, but we'll start that, I guess, this next year. Well, spring break is supposed to be one of those things that help you unwind, right? You're supposed to, uh, whenever you do spring break or, or take a vacation, it's an opportunity to get away from the stress of life, uh, kind of get a, uh, a reprieve from all the things that have been going on. And hopefully for those of you coming back, uh, the weather isn't too stressful. Um, but, but that's kind of the purpose of vacations. And now more than ever, it seems as though we need some relief from stress and anxiety, and here's what I mean by that. A survey recently came out this past fall, the um, American Psychological Association, and they reported that the future of the nation causes stress in two out of three people. And I think the other third were maybe on fall break at the time of the survey. But this is an increase that people, basically what they're saying is people are increasingly have more stress and anxiety in our culture. We're concerned about what the future looks like. And I think all of us can say, yeah, that, that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, when you turn on the news or you look at your social media feed, there's a lot of things that create stress and anxiety and uncertainty about 
What's going on? Our nation faces challenges, regardless of your political persuasion. I think everyone can agree we face challenges, and perhaps we feel maybe more divided than ever. And so there's this, this sense of anxiety and stress. And that is heightened by the, the, the kind of the climate of a lot of the way that people try to incite change is through fear, right? A lot of the catalyst for changing the way people think or feel or act is kind of this alarmism of, of inciting fear. And that's not to minimize the challenges, but it is kind of the culture that we live in, the environment that we live in. So our world in some ways feels a little more divided, cynical, and troubled uh, than ever before. I've titled this, this message Thoughts and Prayers for two reasons. One, because uh, where we're at in the gospel story today in John 17 literally is the end of Jesus' final thoughts with his disciples, the Last Supper. And the passage we're looking at today, John 17, is Jesus' prayer that kind of wraps up this conversation. But the second reason I titled it Thoughts and Prayers is because it kind of illustrates the point. If you do a Google search on Thoughts and Prayers, uh, you don't have to do it now, but if you want to, I guess you can. You can check my work here. The first things that came up for me, at least, was there's a Wikipedia page. And then there's an urban dictionary definition which says, Thoughts and Prayers, a useless phrase uttered in times of sorrow or tragedy. And then next is a CNN article, How Thoughts and Prayers Went from Common Condolence to Cynical Meme. The next article is in The Atlantic, The Case for Thoughts and Prayers, Even If You Don't Believe in God. Relevant Magazine has an article after that that says, Do Thoughts and Prayers Do Any Good? So even an expression like Thoughts and Prayers after some sort of tragedy has become a source of division. We don't trust each other's motives. Do you really care about this? Because if you did, you would do something different. So it creates this anxiety. It creates stress in people. It creates uncertainty about what does all this mean? Where are we going? It's an all-time high of division. So as we drop into John's gospel this morning, we actually stumble upon Jesus and his disciples in a stressful situation. This is not uh, the most peaceful situation, even though they're relaxed and having dinner. It's kind of a tense conversation. Because it's right before Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified. And Jesus is explaining to his disciples all that's going to happen. And it looks a little bit different than they thought. They've been following this guy for three years. And he's saying, hey, this is kind of how this story is going to end. And they're like, what? We signed up for that? But in this particular passage, I think one of the things we find is that Jesus is actually praying that his disciples would experience peace, truth, and unity. Peace, truth, and unity. In fact, if you've ever wondered what it would be like to have Jesus pray for you, this is actually the passage where Jesus prays for you. He prays for us. In verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, meaning just the disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in their message through me. And so this morning, as we look at chapter 17, what I want us to kind of unpack is these three attributes that Jesus is hoping his disciples embody. 
that I think are very relevant, relevant for the time we live in, of this time of stress and anxiety. And it's peace in a troubled world, truth in a cynical world, and unity in a divided world. And if you have your note sheet, you can kind of follow along there. I've included those there if you want to jot down any thoughts or reflections as we kind of unpack these. But this is what I think Jesus is, is kind of highlighting as attributes he wants us to embody, embody in the midst of the environment we live in. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John 17. Or if you have a Bible app, you can go there. Um, we'll have the passages on the screen as well. Um, but let me give you kind of, let's zoom out and do a kind of a 30,000 foot view of John's gospel. I know you guys have been working through John's gospel a bit, um, but let's just kind of take a step back. Um, how many of you have ever seen the Bible Project? Anyone ever used the Bible Project? It's a website. If you haven't used that, I'd, I'd encourage you to go check it out. They've got some great videos. Um, but they've got this, this overview, which you're not going to be able to read. Can anyone read that? Okay, you're not going to be able to read it. But it gives you kind of a snapshot. And one of the things that they do is they kind of divide up the, the, the Bible in the major chunks in John's Gospel. So homework assignment. Well, you all have phones. You can look at it right now if you want. Uh, the Bible Project. But they divide it up into six, uh, kind of six sections in John's Gospel. And a lot of commentators and theologians do something similar. So there's a, in the first chapter, there's an epilogue. Then chapters 2 through 10, it's kind of all Jesus' work, miraculous signs and some controversies. He's getting in these battles with the, the Pharisees, religious leaders. And then that kind of culminates in chapters 11 and 12, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. And then the section that we're in is in chapter 13 through 17, which is the Last Supper. Jesus is talking to his disciples before he gets arrested. So as we come up on Easter, this is like the Thursday night. Okay, when you read, the, when you read John 13 through 17, it's like the Thursday night before Good Friday, before he gets arrested. He's having this conversation with them. And in this section, you'll find um, Jesus kind of highlight a few different things in this conversation. One, he's telling them what's going to happen. And like I said, this is not what they thought. He says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. He tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He says, I'm going to go somewhere that you can't go. And that's creating anxiety and stress for the disciples. But he's saying, hey, don't worry. It's a good thing that I'm leaving. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And, and that's, that's better than my presence with you. And the disciples, most likely, they would have thought they signed up for like a King David type Messiah. You know, King David was like an actual king over Israel that reigned. They thought they were signing up for like an actual political takeover where Jesus restores Israel and gets them out from under oppression of the Roman Empire. And so they're a little discombobulated on what's going on here because they're like, this, this isn't what we thought it would be. And yet Jesus is talking about a different kind of kingdom. That song we just sang about let heaven come to earth, sometimes it comes to earth differently than we think. And that's what's going on here with the disciples. And they, they don't have a category for what Jesus is talking about, that he's going to die? What do you mean? I thought we were going to have like this revolution takeover. And you're going to die? So it's a stressful time. And John 17, it's outlined kind of these three different ways. The verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. 20 through 26, he prays for the future disciples. So this is a little bit of a, a long section of scripture, and I kind of consolidated some of it. But let's just read through this real quick, and then we're going to unpack these attributes of peace, truth, 
and unity. So hang with me here, John 17. It says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This next section is praying for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Last section, he's praying for future believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Deep breath, that's Jesus' prayer. Almost all of it. I cut out a couple sections there, so I encourage you to read back through it. So this is Jesus' prayer for himself, for his disciples, and for future believers, for us. And there's three, there's probably more than three, but three key components I think Jesus is praying about. Peace, truth, and unity. That we might embody those things. That Jesus' followers might embody those things in the world. So let's unpack those. Let's start with peace. You'll notice in chapter 17, Jesus says, at the very beginning, he says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Well, what is he, what is he talking about after Jesus said this? What did he say right before that? In 1633, this is one of my favorite passages, so relevant for us right now. He says, I have told you these things, all that stuff he's been talking to them about. I have told you these things so that in you, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Sometimes we think peace is contingent upon our circumstances. And Jesus is offering a peace that is not contingent upon your circumstances. In fact, he's telling the disciples, you're going to have trouble in your life. And I'm sure many of you have lived long enough to go, yeah, I I agree with that. It hasn't always been smooth sailing for me. And yet Jesus is offering a peace that transcends our circumstances. 
Now, we look a lot of different places when we feel stress and anxiety and we need some sort of sense of peace. In fact, I saw this cartoon recently that I thought was pretty uh, telling of the kinds of things that we will do. I don't know if you can see this, but the zebra is coloring in between his stripes here. Anyone color to relieve stress? You know, the adult coloring books, they're kind of popular for a little bit. But a lot of times we, do, we can do a lot of funny things to try to bring ourselves peace. A lot of times we think, oh, if I just uh, get this promotion at work, or if I get this new job, or if I get this new house, or if I can just get into that relationship, or for those of you watching basketball last night, if Purdue could just win. Any Purdue fans? Is it too soon? Too soon to bring it up? Yeah, I hear some amens out there. They should have won that game. I'm just going to say, I'm a, I'm a Fairweather fan, but I was rooting for Purdue. But we think, man, if my team could just win, if I could win my bracket, it'll bring me peace. And yet Jesus is offering a different kind of peace that's not contingent upon circumstances. In fact, we can look a lot of different places to find peace. But I love what St. Augustine, a famous theologian who lived a long, long time ago, only about 350 years after Jesus, he says this. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. That we can scour the earth to try to find all these things that will make us feel a sense of peace and relief from stress and anxiety. And you're not going to find it unless you look to Christ. That's why he's talking about in this prayer, Jesus is praying for us that we would remain in him. Because it's in him, regardless of the circumstances, that we can discover peace. And so how do we find this peace? I think that's connected to the next idea here, which is truth. So let's look at truth for a second. In verse 2 of uh, chapter 17, Jesus says, For you granted him authority, meaning God the Father has granted Jesus authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given. So Jesus is saying he's been given authority. Earlier in this conversation in chapter 14, he tells the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now this is an interesting claim for the world we live in right now. Because we're not sure what is or isn't true. We live in a very relativistic environment. I'll give you a couple examples. We have expressions like perception is reality. Which on the one hand, I get the, the, the meaning of that, right? It's like what people perceive becomes their reality. It's kind of a perspective thing. But perception isn't actually reality. Reality is reality. And you can have an incorrect perception of it or a correct perception of it. Now, we don't all agree on that. That's why you have people who say things like, speak your truth. As in other words, say what you think is true, that's great. But don't tell me that I have to think that. Don't try to impose your truth on me. We're not even sure scientifically if we agree on some things anymore. I'm actually a big basketball fan. I follow the NBA more than Purdue. Sorry, you Purdue fans. Uh, But there's this one NBA player who is a flat earther, okay? So he like believes the earth is flat. And I, I was in New Zealand a couple years ago and I can kind of understand why he thinks that, 
When you get that far away, it looks like it's just the ends of the earth. But people would say in, in response to him, oh, that's, yeah, if he believes in flat earth, that works for him, great. I believe in a round earth, that works for me. But we can't even agree on that. We don't want to tell somebody that they're wrong, that their perception of reality could be wrong. We're not even certain on some of our scientific things that for hundreds of years we've kind of agreed on. So this idea of Jesus stepping forward and saying, hey, I have been given authority. I am the truth. You know what would happen to him if Jesus got on the news today and said, I am the one who has truth? He'd probably be crucified. Kind of what has happened already. This isn't actually anything new. In fact, if you jump over to um, John 18, 37, Jesus has this interesting conversation with Pilate. Pilate is kind of in charge, the Roman, the Roman guy who's in charge. And he doesn't have any skin in the game in this whole thing. The Pharisees are bringing Jesus. They want him to kill Jesus, crucify him. Pilate's just like, hey, I don't want there to be an uprising because the Roman higher-ups will be on breathing down my neck. So he doesn't really have any skin in the game. He's just trying to make sure that he's not at fault in any way here. And this is the conversation that they have in 37. Pilate says to Jesus, you are a king then. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate has this great line that I think is so poignant for the world we live in right now, where he says, what is truth? How can you know what is true or not? What you claim to be as true is just your perception of the world. And you can't tell somebody else who has a different perception of the world that what they see is wrong. And yet Jesus is saying, no, I am the truth. This is the whole like argument of Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, right? You can't just accept him as this great teacher. You either believe he was crazy, he was lying, or he actually is who he said he was. Because he said, hey, I am the truth. I'm the one who's been given authority. I'm the one who is actually king of what's going on around here. It looks as though these kings and kingdoms of the world are in charge, but I'm actually the one in charge. And it's, yet it's this upside-down kingdom, right? Heaven coming to earth looks differently than even the disciples thought because here you have the king, and he's going to give up his life. That's a very different way than a lot of the ways that we watch our kings exercise their power, right? It's kind of a flexing of power. And yet here Jesus is coming to surrender, and he says, I am the truth. And so one of the things that I think is important for us in the world that we live in is so often we can just fill our heads with all this noise of information, right? We live in unprecedented time where we have more information than, than the world has, ever has. We're aware of more things than, than you can imagine. And yet there's all these studies about how it's actually counterproductive. And so I think one of the things that's important for us to do is to turn down the volume of all that noise and turn up the volume of Jesus' voice in our life. And I don't know what kind of noise you fill your head with, I, whether you watch the news. I mean, for me, I get sucked into my Twitter timeline, and it's just like all these reactions, all these different things that are going on. We just fill our head with all this stuff. 
And yet, are we allowing Jesus' truth to have a, be turned up, turn up the volume in our lives? When I um, mention the University of USC, what comes to your mind? Anyone? Scam? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of saying it. I, what comes to my mind is Aunt Becky, but that's probably just because of my age. Uh, you know, Aunt Becky was from Full House, and she's kind of caught in the middle of this whole thing. But I don't want to rag on Aunt Becky because I was a fan of Full House. And I don't know what's even going on there. But that's another one of those things that just fills our minds, right? But USC, one of the other things that comes to my mind is there was a, a president that they had a number of years ago that I got to hear speak. His name is Stephen Sample. And he was president of USC. I, I don't know exactly when, but I heard him speak probably around 2004. And he wrote this book called Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. It's a really interesting book. And one of the things he talks about in there is he did this experiment, and this is back in 2004, right? Like information overload has actually ramped up since then. But he did this experiment where he said, I'm not going to read anything except for 25 books. He said, I'm not going to listen to the news. I'm not going to read the news. The latest, greatest new book that comes out, I'm not going to read it. He said, I'm just going to commit myself to reading these 25 books. And his logic behind this, kind of his contrarian nature, was that we're so apt to, to grab the next new thing that he was saying, I'm going to listen to the authors who have stood the test of time. And he cited some research about how so many of these new books won't even be sold five years from now and all this kind of stuff. And the reason why I bring that up is because I think there's a parallel for us is that there is value in us turning up the volume of a voice that has stood the test of time. We can get caught in a lot of prisoner of the moment stuff. And that's not to minimize what's happening, right? I'm not saying bury your head in the sand. But are we turning the volume up on Jesus' voice? What does he say to Pilate? He said, those who are on the side of truth, listen to my voice. Well, if we find ourselves anxious and not at peace, maybe part of it is we've, we have allowed too many other voices to kind of be too loud in our minds. And we need to turn the volume up on Christ's voice. And that can be done in a lot of different ways, whether it's worship songs or reading books about you know, the, the scriptures or reading the scripture itself or prayer or connecting with other believers, having conversations about that. But are we turning up Christ's voice up in our, in our lives? This is where we'll find that sense of peace is by having his truth kind of reverberate within us. So truth in a cynical world. Last one, unity in a divided world. Ultimately, this prayer is all about unity. Jesus is talking about how he has oneness with the Father, and he wants us to experience the same kind of oneness with God the Father, as well as with uh, himself and with each other. And why does he care about that? Because Jesus cares about the world. The unity isn't just so that we can have kind of kumbaya moments. It's so that we might, as a community, be a witness of God's kingdom and how it operates different than the kingdoms of this world. 
This is why Jesus could say while he hangs crucified on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I heard one person say, hey, if Jesus hates all the same people that you hate, you may not be listening to his words. Because Jesus has this radical love of the world. What's the most famous uh, passage in the New Testament, do you think? You see signs at football games sometimes with it. Anyone? John 3.16, yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in John's gospel, the, the word world, the Greek word cosmos, which is where we get our word, word cosmos, actually appears 79 times in John's gospel. And in chapter 17 during this prayer, it's 18 times it shows up. Jesus cares about our world. And at the end of his prayer in verse 21 and 23, he says, So that the world will believe you have sent me. He desires this unity for us so that the world might know him. It's not just about speaking truth, it's about living out truth. You know, a lot of um, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what you call them, theologians or uh, church practitioners today, they talk about this shift that has changed culturally in the U.S. Like 20, 30, 40 years ago, the way that people came to Christ is you would hear the message and you would believe, then you would enter into a faith community that you would belong to, and then by doing that, you would become more like Christ. So if you think about this, like think about kind of Billy Graham crusade era, right? You get a bunch of people together, people give, they believe, they give their life to Christ, they connect with the community, and then they become more like Christ. A lot of kind of church practitioners and theologians say culturally we've shifted where people need to belong to a community, and then they believe, and then they become. And the church hasn't always been that welcoming of those who don't think like us. And when you read the Gospels, you know, we kind of say that in a funny way, that, hey, if Jesus hates all the people that you hate, then it may, you may not be hearing him correctly. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is criticized for who he hangs out with. And I wonder if there's something to this idea of, of do we have that divine unity, that collective expression of love for others that in, it, it of, in and of itself is a statement to those around us. Now, I don't mean we can't have conflict and that sort of thing, but how do we navigate tough times with each other in our families, as a church community, in our work settings? What kind of uh, people are we in those environments? It's this, um, this unity that Christ is praying that we might have so that the world may know who he is. Our world is living without peace and Christ prays that we would be carriers of peace. Our world is living in a cynical place and yet we have the true message of Christ to offer. Our world is living very divided, and yet we can be ambassadors of reconciliation among people. This is Jesus' prayer for us, is that we would embody these qualities, and in doing so, we actually discover peace in and of ourselves. I want to close with uh, this final story here. 
there was a guy by the name of Bill. Bill was overworked, out of shape. Um, well, that's Bill after he worked out. <laughs> Mike, Mike's, Mike's getting ready, get, getting ready for my punchline here. So, um, Bill, it's fine. It, it doesn't matter. It won't change the, the story. Um, so, Bill is, he doesn't look like that, okay? He, he was so out of shape, in fact, that he had to, his heart was failing him. He had to get a heart transplant. And his heart got so bad, they had to take his heart out before, um, before he could even receive a, a, a transplant. They had to give him um, an artificial heart. And so you can imagine being somebody who's living on an artificial heart, just waiting for somebody to give you a new heart. So this was Bill's life. In the, it was late 1998. He was in his 50s waiting for this heart. Well, there was this other guy um, who was a young guy, about early 30s. Uh, he was very athletic, very in shape. Um, and he was so athletic, in fact, he, was, he competed in some Olympic time trials. Okay, so just to kind of give you an idea of how healthy this guy was. And he was also a Hollywood stuntman. Well, he tragically died in a Hollywood stunt accident, but he was a, a donor. And so Bill gets the call and says, hey, we've got a, a donor for you. You're going to get a new heart. And you can imagine this was great news for Bill, right? He's going to get this heart. And so Bill has this heart transplant. And not only did he have like a, a heart that was really effective. I mean, this guy had a really good heart. That's why he was a great athlete and this Hollywood stuntman. But Bill also psychologically kind of changed his outlook on life. It's kind of like a second chance. And he said, I got to steward this new heart differently. I got to live differently. I got to do, uh, take care of it. And so he gets to the place where he's, you know, exercising. He's, he competes in these transplant games um, with people who, are, who have had transplants. And they, they kind of do these ultra marathons, that sort of thing. And so here you can see Bill. Uh, we got Bill. Here we go. Maybe? Nope. Okay. Well, you saw Bill. Uh, Bill's looking pretty good. Uh, he's like in his early 60s here. I'm jealous of Bill. I'm like 36. Um, so you kind of see this transformation, right? And it's, it's this mixture of tragedy and triumph. Because on the one hand, you have this guy who didn't steward his own health very well. And he's near death. And then you have this other guy who's in great health, a young man, and tragically dies. So on the one hand, one person dies so that this other person might live. And it's this interesting dynamic of tragedy and triumph. Well, one day Bill gets a phone call from the family, and they say they want to meet him. They want to meet the guy who's carrying the heart of their son who has lost his life. So they arrange this meeting. The family is pulling up to this location in Arizona. And Bill's not sure what to expect, right? I mean, you don't really know what to say or how they're going to respond. And so Bill is kind of waiting there as the family pulls up and the family gets out. They don't say anything. And the father of the son who had passed away steps forward and he walks up to Bill, and he doesn't say anything. He just pulls out a stethoscope, and he places it on Bill's chest. 
And with tears coming down his eyes, he says, I just wanted to hear my son's heartbeat one more time. And as I mentioned, it's a story of tragedy and triumph. And you can maybe see the parallels of the lives that we live. The disciples are stressed out because they don't realize the magnitude of what Christ is doing for them. And not just for them, but for the world. He's giving his life so that we might live. So that we might have a new heart that beats in our chest. And so this morning for us, if God the Father put his stethoscope up to our heart, what does he hear? Does he hear the heartbeat of Christ reverberating in us? This is what Jesus' prayer was about, is that we might be one with him. Live in that peace, that truth, and that unity with God the Father and with each other. So that the world might know who Jesus is. And so this morning for us, I would just ask, are we going to Christ to be stewards of that heartbeat that he's given us? So that we might be ambassadors of Christ in a stressed out world. It's amazing when you look at the disciples before this. They're scared and scattered. But then when Jesus comes back from the dead. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. They're connected and courageous. There's this sense of peace in them when you read through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. That I don't know about you, but I go, I got to get that kind of peace. You have Paul in prison praising God for being worthy of being jailed and beaten for Christ's sake. That's a different kind of peace than the world we live in. And yet that's what Christ calls us to, to live in that unity, to have that heartbeat, be one with God in that way. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn the volume up on your voice in our lives. God, maybe we experience that type of peace that's not contingent upon circumstances. That, that kind of unity with you and with each other. Lord, so that the world may know you. God, I don't know where each person is at, what's going on in their lives, but I just pray that you would meet us now. Speak to us, Lord. Whatever our situation or circumstance or the thing that has got us losing sleep at night, God, I pray that you would speak to us in this moment. That we might hear the truth of your voice we might follow you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray.